Good evening there, my friends here at MutinyRadio.Evan. Chester Cashcock here, and giving you my love and regard as well as movies over there. And uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that any time I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. I mean, if anyone who knows anything about comedy knows that Pamtastic's books the best of San Francisco and Beyond's underground comics. It's a great showcase, and they have a fun time at Pamtastic's Deep in the Mission District, where you can laugh off your tushy for a mere $5 every Friday to 10 p.m. And I laugh because $5, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with. So to laugh it off for a mere $5 is indubitious. But if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, well, don't even worry. Don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show and giggle in the comfort of anywhere, like your Aspen summer home on the mountain ridge with the kayak feeling. So all you got to do is just go to podcastics.pcrcollective.org slash comedy clubhouse, or you can listen live every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. as your host Pam Benjamin brings you the best comedy from San Francisco and beyond the universe. And what's better than the universe? <laughs> it's a cash cock, honey. <laughs> that gets you up to the front in all the right places. It's cannabis energy. It seems the faster you go, the more cannabis energy you need. So if you want to win, you have to have lots of cannabis energy. And the swellest way I know to get it is just by using Green Army Skincare. Boy, they're just crammed full of cannabis energy. There are more cannabis energy units in one lip balm tube than you use circling the base 10 times or when you ride your bike four miles across the city. And it's fast acting. Why, no sooner that you apply some balm to your mouth or pain areas, you practically feel the new strength in your muscles. And what's more, Green Army Skincare is a good, wholesome product. They're made with body-nourishing cannabis and other natural ingredients. So go out there today and pick up some Green Army Skincare products from your local cannabis procurement center. Join the GreenArmy.com. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, we'd like to invite you down to Bender's Barn Grill in the heart of the Mission District in San Francisco at 806 South Van Ness. Uh, we've got great food by our kitchen counter offer, burgers, tater tots, tachos, corn dogs, all sorts of good stuff like that. They're open from opening until 11 p.m. most days of the week, except Saturday. Uh, every Saturday night, we've got live rock and roll, some of the best local bands in San Francisco, and touring acts as well. Come on down, 10 p.m., rock and roll, only night of the week. We have a $5 cover charge, always 5 bucks for live rock and roll. We're open from 4 p.m. until 2 a.m., Monday through Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, 2 to 2. Come on down, have some drinks with us. We've got Whiskey Wednesday, Tequila Tuesday, and we've always got the Steve McQueen special. Shot a bullet bourbon and a can of California lager for 8 bucks. Come down and enjoy our patio. It's open uh, in the afternoon, not really in the evening, but a lot of good folks hanging out back there. Come on down, give us a shout. Drop by the bar, make some friends. Thanks, folks. Bender's Bar and Grill in the heart of the Mission District, San Francisco, California. 
with a happy hour every Monday through Friday until 7 p.m. Don't miss it. Go to Bender's Bar. Big supporter of the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival 2018. Oh, yeah. It goes down. Come smoke with your boy. Grinder. Spark is San Francisco's premier cannabis dispensary with a focus on serving and educating patients for seven years. Spark is dedicated to creating the best in-store experience with its extensive menu, friendly staff, and one of the few cannabis vape lounges in San Francisco. Spark welcomes you to visit its two great locations as a medical patient or for recreational adult use in 2018. Spark is located at 1256 Mission Street between 8th and 9th and at 473 Haight Street at Fillmore. Both locations are open until 10 p.m. every night. Spark staff looks forward to serving you. Coming at these bitches and all these snitches, hitting switches, going back to riches. Rainbow Grocery, a worker-owned and operated food cooperative located at 1745 Folsom Street in the Mission District of San Francisco. Let's hear what locals have to say about Rainbow Grocery. Their bulk section is dope AF. I love their, their variety of cheese and home decor items uh, and this of unique items that you can't find anywhere else. Their cheese section is insane. I love Rainbow Grocery because it's the number one grocery store to shop at when you're having a potluck and need to fulfill everyone's dietary needs. They don't have meat. Rainbow Grocery Cooperative, an amazing San Francisco staple since 1975. For all your space chicken sci-fi comedy non-political humor needs, go to timstesseract.com. Read fiction about the future of San Francisco after the water wars of 2121 in Jane 6. Ask a Jedi for important life hacks. Eat flesh with the bare exoskeleton Contessa. And check your horror horoscope on Horoscopia. Updated every three parsecs. Timstesseract.com Timstesseract.com So you want to be a comic? It's not as easy as we make it look. But that's because Mutiny Radio has eight hours a week of open mic stage time for all your comedy workout needs. Strain those improv muscles every Sunday from four to six at Getting Sketchy with David Stolowitz. Press out those new jokes every Monday, six to eight on Joke Workshop with four-minute sets and four-minute critiques from everyone. Get positive by host Pam Benjamin. Pump those dick jokes every Thursday, seven to nine with True Hustle Thursdays. Hashtag THC. That's hashtag THCT. You want more open mics? Fridays, six to eight. Happy hour with guest host and George 
D. Smith. Pew, pew, pew. Four open mics every week at Mutiny Radio, brother. After work and take a seat at Asiento, a great place to meet friends, have delicious tapas and drinks, and relax with your neighbors. Located at Bryant and 21st Street in the Deep Mission, Kitty Corner Block from Mutiny Radio. Come and get a drink during the comedy festival and enjoy happy hour pricing all night long with your festival ticket. A great neighborhood bar. Come take a seat at Asiento. Everybody should listen to Mutiny Radio at Mutiny FM. It's a great place to listen to crazy things. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me sea dogs and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of Mutiny FM. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of you listening.
Decirle adiós a los muchachos Porque pronto me voy para la guerra Que aunque vaya a pelear en otra tierra Voy a salvar mi derecho, mi patria y mi fe yo me despedí de mi adorada y le pedí por Dios que nunca llore, que recuerde por siempre para mis amores que yo de ella nunca me Si necesita, quien la socorrerá si se enfermara, quien le hablará de mí si preguntara por este hijo que nunca quizás volverá. ¿Quién me le rezará si ella se muere? ¿Quién pondrá una flor en su sepultura? ¿Quién se condolerá de mi amargura si yo vuelvo y no encuentro a mí?
hilft mir, wo die Blumen sind. Wo sind sie geblieben? Sagt mir, wo die Blumen sind. Was ist geschehen? Sagt mir, wo die Blumen sind. Mädchen flüchten sie geschwind. Wann wird man je verstehen? Wann wird man je verstehen? Sagt mir, wo die Mädchen sind. Wo sind sie geblieben? Sagt mir, wo die Mädchen sind. Was ist geschehen? Sagt mir, wo die Mädchen sind. Schwind, wann wird man je verstehen? Wann wird man je verstehen? Sagt mir, wo die Männer sind, wo sind sie geblieben? Sagt mir, wo die Männer sind, was ist Sagt mir, wo die Männer sind. Zogen fort, der Krieg beginnt. Wann wird man je verstehen? Wann wird man je verstehen? Und sagt, wo die Soldaten sind. Was ist geschehen? Sagt, wo die Soldaten sind. Über Gräber weht der Wind. Wann wird man je verstehen? Wann wird man je verstehen? Sagt mir, wo die Gräber sind. Sind sie geblieben? Sagt mir, wo die Gräber sind. Was ist geschehen? Sagt mir, wo die Gräber sind. Blumen blühen im Sommerwind. Wann wird man je verstehen? Wann wird man je Sagt mir, wo die Blumen sind, wo sind sie geblieben? Sagt mir, wo die Blumen sind, was ist geschehen? Sagt mir, wo die Blumen sind, Mädchen flüchten sie geschwind. Wann wird man je verstehen? Wann wird man je Good morning, mutineers. 
This is me, the bee, back again after a week's absence. Um, we're here on in Mutiny Radio's studio at 2781 21st Street, and this is the Labor and Love Radio Podcast. Welcome, where we tell you how it is. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for someone else, a lot of someone else's worked for dollars they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table where you work, the negotiating table that is, you're on the menu. And never, but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. It's only a waste of time. Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. Welcome to our podcast. Today's going to be heavily geared toward the peace movement. And those three songs that we just sang you, we just played for you, are indications of that. First, we had the great Willie Dixon, a conscientious objector himself in World War II, singing, It don't make sense if you can't make peace. And it sure don't. <laughs> Willie Dixon said he wouldn't serve in... Um, the armed forces of a country that allowed him to be treated and allowed black people to be treated the way they were. He would not support a government like that. So he served uh, 10 months in jail as a conscientious objector. Wish I'd known that. Wish I'd known that when I was going through conscientious objecting, unsuccessfully, by the way. Willie Dixon, followed by Daniel Santos, Puerto Rican singer. And his song is all about the war. He's having to leave to go serve in the war. But he's worried about what's going to happen to the people he leaves behind, such as his mother. Let's see if we can run through with a translation. Uh, I came to tell you, because I'm going to the war right pretty soon, even though I'm going to go fight in other areas, I'm going to save my rights, my country, and my life. I said goodbye to my beauty. Um, I, I asked, by God, please don't cry. Um, que recuerde por siempre mis amores. I remember all the people I've loved. The, the implication is women. And never uh, from her will I, I'll never forget her. Is part of my soul. 
killing me to leave my mother alone. Who's going to take care of her? She's quite old. Who's going to do her a favor if she needs it? Who will shelter her and, and protect her if she gets sick? Who will, who will tell her about me if she happens to ask? Or ese hijo que nunca quizás, or this young man who perhaps never will come back, will pray for her in case she dies, will put a flower on her tomb, who's going to console me from my bitterness if I come if I come back. And don't find my mother here. Good, a question that young men have to ask. Let's skip right to radio labor. And the radio labor weekly report, as always, there's a lot going on all over the world. Last month, October, got to be known as Striketober because of big strikes, which we'll hear more about in a little while. But right now, the World Report from Radio Labor. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor World Report recorded on Friday, November 12th, 2021. I'm Mark Boulanger. In the report this week, unions at the COP26 Climate Change Conference. The Labor Start report about union events and singing. <laughs> This is Radio Labour. The UN Climate Conference in Glasgow, COP26, ended on November 12, 2021, with many still concerned that the world will not be able to limit global temperatures to within 1.5 Celsius of pre-industrial levels. But trade unionists attending the conference were able to get their voices heard, and they won commitments for the labor movement's demand for just transitions to green, sustainable economies. One of the unionists attending the conference was Walton Pantland, a communications officer for Industrial Global Union. He reported on the demonstration of 100,000 people held as the conference began. Contingents of trade unionists here behind me who are mobilizing to fight 
for a just transition. We need the voices and organisation of working people. We need jobs for the future. We need safe, secure energy for the future. We need to transform our transport systems and our homes. And if we leave it in the hands of the corporations, then our voices and our needs will be left behind. And that's why here in the UK and across Europe and across the world, we need to build a movement of workers and of trade unionists to demand the change that we want on our terms that projects our jobs, our futures for ourselves and for coming generations. We have indeed a world to win. Solidarity, have a great day. Enjoy the weather. Mr. Pantland also reported on events as the conference continued into its second week. We're now in our second week of COP26, and the question is, what have we achieved? What's happened? Where are we going? Have we managed to save the world? And to be honest, it can be a little bit hard to tell because there is so much going on at the same time, and it can be really confusing to work out what it all means, what the big picture is. I have been going to trade union events every day. Uh, there are a number of events every single day. If you wanted to attend every event that there is, you wouldn't be able to. There are sector-specific events, events related to trade unions and gender, trade unions and young people, trade unions and the rise of the far right, and all of it related to climate change and just transition and the need for us to work together to build a better world. I am cautiously optimistic, as are many of the other trade union delegates who are here, because we feel that the negotiations are going quite well. It seems that our political leaders learned from the COVID crisis that existential threats need to be taken seriously, that everyone dying is not good for the economy. And as a result, there seems to be a greater commitment to making real change at, at this COP. What the trade unions are most excited about is firstly the large amounts of money which have been committed to decarbonizing the economy, both in the developed and the developing world. If this money is used well, it means that we can create many, many, many hundreds of thousands and even millions of good green union jobs and have an opportunity to reindustrialize our economies. And the other commitment that is really important is the commitment to just transition principles, which was made by around 30 countries last week. And those countries include the US, Canada, the UK, the European Commission, and a number of individual countries in the European Union. And they have committed to applying just transition principles to all their funding. So if they fund decarbonization in the developing country, it has to respect just transition principles. Trade unions have had a really, really strong voice here. Um, we were part of the trade union workers' block on the 6th of November. On Saturday, there was a big demonstration in Glasgow with 100,000 people all demanding climate justice. And we feel that our voices have been heard. One of the union sessions at the conference was addressed by Sharon Burrow, the General Secretary of the International Trade Union Confederation. The ITUC represents national union centers such as the Ghana Trades Union Congress and the AFL-CIO in the United States at the world level. There's no doubt that you have done a fantastic job 
because just transition is on everybody's lips, at least at this global level. We've still got real work to make it meaningful, though, on the ground for workers. And even at the global level, with governments and companies, we need to be very clear about what our demands are. And it's very hard, of course, for workers. It's about jobs. It's about jobs, jobs and jobs. We want governments to have jobs plans everywhere, but we want companies to have jobs with, of course, unions. Also addressing participants at the union session was Francis O'Grady, the General Secretary of Britain's Trades Union Congress, the TUC. In a very practical way, that means that steel workers in South Wales are fighting for the tech they need and the investment they need to turn that steel green. We've got automotive workers all over the country who literally, including my dad, many decades ago, were arguing back then for an alternative workers' plan to produce electric vehicles. Were not listened to right back then? Okay, they're listening now. Also attending COP26 was Samantha Smith, the director of the ITUC's Just Transition Center. I asked her to describe Just Transition. A just transition is an idea that comes from our, our movement, the labor movement. So it comes out of North American unions and some of their partners a couple of decades ago. And it's basically the idea that when you're trying to address a big problem like climate change, that you can do it in two ways. You can do it in a top-down, unjust way that makes people lose their jobs, or you can do it in a process with workers and our unions with employers, sometimes with governments, where you basically negotiate what's going to happen to people's jobs at a workplace level, at a company level, at a national level, and even at a sectoral level. And instead of looking at this just as an exercise to kind of missions, you look at it as an exercise to make sure that everybody has social protection in this time of big transition, that The content of jobs may change, but jobs aren't going to get worse, and they might even get better, and that new jobs that are going to be created aren't going to be a bunch of sort of union-busting new entrants, but actually that the new jobs are going to be good jobs. What can unions and their members do to support a just transition? We are already doing it. So I I have to say that uh, over the last five years, which is about how long... ITUC has had a Just Transition Center. Um, I personally have gotten to see so many of the national federations and unions at all different levels getting active on this issue. And what what unions are doing is, one, they're um, pushing governments to deliver what I mentioned at the climate negotiations, so to deliver a process with unions at the table that's going to produce decent jobs and social protection while it brings down emissions. Um, So that's a sort of big national policy level. At the sector level, for example, we're seeing the industrial unions in Europe having a massive campaign across Europe for a just transition for workers. They're campaigning through collective bargaining and also through national and European level policy work to get good jobs for workers. 
in South Africa, the unions collectively bargained for a national commission on just transition and climate change, and they're now negotiating at the national level a framework agreement on just transition. Um, yeah, I can go on and on, but there's really a lot happening, and in a lot of countries, including countries like Brazil, where our comrades at CUT Brazil have successfully negotiated with their affiliates a just transition process at the state level involving employers and government and the energy sector. Here with his report about union events is Labor Start correspondent Derek Blackadder. This week, our top stories section included links to coverage of the arrest of an Algerian trade unionist. Ramzi Dardar's release is the subject of one of our current online solidarity actions. We had stories from Sudan about the repression of strikes organized by a wide variety of unions as they pushed for a return to civilian rule. Especially hard hit have been the teachers' union, which had hundreds of its activists arrested, and the Bank Workers' Union. The latter had declared a revolutionary strike for democracy. Within hours, its leadership disappeared and are presumed to be in prison. And of course, we also carried updates from unions around the world as COP26 came to an end. The reviews are generally negative, especially with regard to the chances of an effective just transition for workers. For our Working Women page, our volunteers found coverage of a sit-in by nurses in Papua New Guinea as they protested gender-based wage theft, sex workers' organizing efforts in Thailand, and how unions have integrated the demand for increased minimum wages and pay equity across Europe. A small sample of the stories appearing on our Health and Safety page and Newswire this week included a study of the mental health effects of continuous monitoring of workers' performance as they work from home or as delivery drivers in the United Kingdom. We also carried several stories about yet another assault on nurses in Canada where workplace violence is becoming routine for healthcare, education, and retail workers. And we covered demands for an investigation into the assassination of a Somali journalist. Our photo of the week is of CTAA members in Buenos Aires who've mobilized to take back their city after the local council surrendered much of the city's green space to developers. Labor Start hosts online solidarity actions at the requests of unions around the world. This week we'd like to highlight an urgent appeal for online solidarity with Swedish warehouse workers who, despite that country's union-friendly international reputation, are facing a concerted effort to break their union. In just a few seconds, you can do your part by sending a solidarity message. Look for details of this and other campaigns on our site. This is Derek Blackadder from Labor Start, reporting for Radio Labor.
And that's it. Labor news you can use. You can listen to our features and daily newscasts at radiolabor.net. I'm Mark Belanger. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity. That was Radio Labor for this week, telling you all about actions that are going on all around the world. And if you go to the Radio Labor website, um, you can be informed about actions that are going on right now where they need someone to maybe write letters and demand justice for an imprisoned uh, labor leader. So check out that side of it, too. Um, people need you. People need your awareness. People need your knowledge. People need your time. Uh, People need you. Okay, so that was the Saints go marching in. And it's someone we might recognize. Must a man walk down Before you call him a man Yes, and how many seas Must the white dove see Before she sleeps in the sand Yes, and how many times Must the cannonballs fly Before they fall out of a van so my friend is a blowing in the wind. The answer is blowing in the wind. How many years must the mountain exist before it is washed to the sea? Yes, and how many years can some people exist before they're allowed to be free? Yes, and how many times must a man turn his head and pretend that he just doesn't see? The answer, my friend, is a blowing in the wind. The answer is blowing.
Okay, that little set there <clears throat> started with uh, When the Saints Go Marching In, the tail end of the, uh, the um, radio labor feature. Followed that one up with <clears throat> Bob Dylan, a very young Bob Dylan, 1963, singing his anthem of the peace movement, Blowing in the Wind. Then we had something from Mavis Staples in Arcade. I give you power, but I can take it away. Give you power, but I got to be free. This means we don't have to go fight in wars. We have the power not to fight. And finally, we had uh, the... Derek Trucks Band were already free, accompanied, I'm assuming, by Susan Tedeschi, but can't be sure. Peace songs all. In fact, the oldest, one of the oldest English poems that we have is called O Western Wind, and it goes like this. O oh, western wind, when wilt thou blow? The small rain down can rain. Christ, that my love were in my arms, and I in my bed again. And the song, the poem is subtitled Soldier's Wife. Soldier's Wife. She's praying that she's praying that the rain it, it rains so that her husband doesn't have to go and fight in a war. A western wind, when wilt thou blow? The small rain down can rain. Christ, that my love were in my arms. And I in my bed again. Heartfelt, calling to us through the ages, condemning war. War is not good for marriages. War is not good for love. In fact, according to Charles Brooke, and looking at medium, magazine page <clears throat> in the entire history of the United States of America has been a grand total of 15 war 15 years when we have not been at war with someone now consider that we're talking about 200 almost 250 years 15 years of peace Willie Nelson Willie Dixon was correct. You can't make peace. The United States was engaged in war for its survival against Great Britain until 1783. <clears throat> 1776 began the Cherokee-American Wars, also called the Chickamauga Wars, a series of back-and-forth conflicts 
between American settlers moving into the Old Southwest and the Cherokee tribes calling this land home. This violence would rage until 1795. Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, and Kentucky justifiably concerned that they would lose still more land, the Cherokees struggled long and hard. There were two peaceful years in 1796 and 1777 before the United States could get more than a breath, a quasi-war with France would break out. It was an undeclared war, but all the more violent for it. Waged primarily on the high seas, it broke out following the fall of the French monarchy when the United States refused to continue to pay back the debt it had accrued during the war. Combined with outrage over the Jay Treaty with Great Britain, it came as little surprise that new leaders of France authorized privateers to conduct attacks on American shipping. 1807, that lasted. In 1810, the U.S. seized control over Spanish-held Florida, so we had three years of peace there. For the next two decades, the United States would engage in a number of conflicts against Native American tribes, Tecumseh, the Seminole Wars, the Creek War, from 1826 to 1830. Yes, there was peace. There was. Four years. Winnebago War in 1827 was very brief. This conflict was a result of the Ho-Chunk tribe launching several attacks against white settlers due to a number of lead miners trespassing, trespassing onto their lands. From 1831, <clears throat> we would have 60 years until 1891 of new conflicts. This wars during this decade are too many. Too many to list here. Suffice it to say, these decades would see continued expansionist efforts by the United States to expand its territory west. Six-decade-long six time period. Cherokee Wars, Texas Indian War, Navajo Wars, the Apache Wars, the invasion of Mexico, the Civil War. There, was an ex there were expeditions to China and Korea, the first military action undertaken by the United States of America, 1871, the Korean Exposition. American forces were originally present to support a diplomatic <clears throat> expedition. The situation spiraled into violence and Korean shore batteries attacked two American warships. 600 American, 50 American troops seized control over several forts 
and killed more than 230 Korean troops. 1897, the war in, in the Philippines. Banana Wars in the Central America and the Caribbean. Over three decades, Cuba, Nicaragua, Haiti, the Dominican Republic would all be occupied at some point with a number of lesser actions occurring as well. 1935 was peaceful, but it was isolationist. As far as 1928, Hitler had already recognized that the United States would be the next great foe of the Third Reich that he was planning following the destruction of the Soviet Union. On and on and on. World War II. Wars after. Korean War. Interventions in, among other places in Greece, the Vietnam War, proxy wars with the Soviet Union and the Vietnam War continued unabated from 1946 all the way until 1975. For three years we had peace until the CIA launched their proxy war in Afghanistan. In this person's lifetime, only in 1997 and 2000 was the United States not involved in a war of conflict. This is in Medium, and the author is Charlie Book. Okay, let's listen to a little Miles, and I'll take a break.
Okay, that was from uh, Miles Davis' Kind of Blue, part of our uh, relaxing music here. Some of the stuff that we talk about is uh, a little rough. Wanted to talk about the number of casualties in American wars. The bloodiest American wars. We know that uh, in Vietnam, forty-seven thousand, forty-seven thousand people were killed. Ten thousand wounded. Huh? Total of dead, wounded. Civil War. This one is by Vietnam War. Total total dead fifty eight thousand two hundred and twenty. Vietnam War one hundred and fifty three thousand three hundred and three wounded. Total casualties two hundred eleven thousand four hundred and fifty four. The bloodiest American war was. Of course, <clears throat> the American Civil War, where Americans shot each other. <laughs> um, let's see, Opium Wars, the United States was involved in that. Anyway, handwriting is clear. Thousands, thousands of Americans, millions of Americans, millions of people worldwide have gone to war. War is the greatest trick that they play on us. They make you believe that your country is different from another country, that the people in that country are different from you and what's really true what's really true is that we're much more alike than different they say that you belong to this construct this thing called a country and if we tell you that there's someone threatening that thing that country and you need to come and get a gun and fight with us. Oh no, not with us. We're not we're not gonna fight. Okay. You will go and fight. And we'll take good care of you if you get shot, you know. Um anyway, so that's the deal. And people believe it. People really believe it. All right, well, we have another thing to celebrate, commemorate, sanctify, 
The story of Karen Silkwood. Okay. Now, first I want to play a song. It's called Are You Karen Silkwood? No doubt some of you have heard of Karen Silkwood. Her case goes back to 1974. Karen Silkwood was a worker in a Kerr-McGee plant where they handled nuclear materials. This Fred Small. Are you Karen Silkwood? The news is bad. Your body is on fire. The worst that we've had might have been the canister, probably the gloves. Better not get too near to the ones that you love. Are you Karen Silkwood? We've heard about you. Talking to the outside, dumb thing to do. People lose confidence. We might close down. Little girl, the stakes are high. We don't fool around. Are you Karen Silkwood? Come on back to bed. This thing's too big for us. It's gone to your head You've got your mission I got my doubts I never asked for this Babe, I think I want out Are you Karen Silkwood? I'll be on the next flight I think we've got them nailed this time Are you sure you're all right? behind you right down the line I'll be there at the restaurant with the man from the times Christ has nothing but blood Better get the ambulance But it won't do no good They're saying she had some notes in the car But they're nowhere around Geez, the place is crawling with press But she don't make a sound Now, this is a uh, video about the case of Karen Silkwood, something we never should forget. Hey everyone, today's story is going to be a little bit different. It's a little sad and it's a little mysterious, 
but it's about a woman named Karen Silkwood. And she was an early whistleblower against one of the largest companies in Oklahoma and also the nation, Kerr McGee. On the evening of November 13, 1974, her Honda ran off of the road and struck the cement culvert right behind me. Karen Silkwood was a young, beautiful 26-year-old woman when she moved to the Oklahoma City area. In early August of 1972, she landed a job as a lab technician at the Kermagee Cimarron facility. This was located just south of Crescent, Oklahoma. The plant takes its name from the nearby Cimarron River and the town named Cimarron City. This position at the plant was really a dream job for Karen. She always excelled in math and science. In fact, during high school, she was the only female in her chemistry class. She had even received a scholarship for her college from her studies in science. She was excited about this job and being able to do something with her skills. The plant mixed plutonium and uranium oxide into pellets which were then formed into rods. These rods were used as fuel for nuclear reactors which was considered at the time to be a clean alternative for energy. Not long after starting this position, Karen met her boyfriend Drew Stevens and roommate Sherry Lou Ellis. She also joined the union where she was eventually elected to a three-person negotiation team. It was this position that she took very seriously. She started observing problems with the employee's safety and documenting those. She also witnessed tampering of x-rays which was used to examine the fuel rods. If gaps were found and left untreated, it could actually cause the plant to have a meltdown or even blow up. In the summer of 1974, she voiced her concerns to the Atomic Energy Commission in Washington, D.C. It was around this same time period that Karen was contaminated with plutonium for the first time. When a person is found to be contaminated, they were stripped down naked and forced to take a shower. An employee in a chemical suit would then scrub down the contaminated person with brushes, powdered detergent, and bleach. This was a really painful procedure and it actually removed one layer of your skin. At that time she was told that she was fine, but yet she had to submit weekly urine and fecal samples. In the meantime, Karen kept compiling evidence against Kerr McGee. In Crescent, Oklahoma, the union brought in scientists and doctors who explained the dangers of plutonium to the employees and how it could cause cancer. The amount needed to cause cancer was actually less than the size of a period on a piece of paper. At this point, people within the plant realized that what she was doing. Many people started harassing her and shunning her because they were fearful that she would have the plant shut down. They all feared that they would lose their jobs, and they didn't like that. On November 5th, 1974, she waved her hands in front of the radiation meter as she was getting off of work. The alarms went off and she was found to be contaminated 
and she had one of those painful, scrubbed-down showers once again. On November 6th, the next day, she returned to work, and after one hour, she left her work area to attend a union meeting. Again, she set off the alarms and had once again another painful decontamination scrubbed down. She was sent home after that and returned the next morning on November 7th. On the way in, she set off the contamination alarms and had a third contamination scrubbing, which was extremely painful. At this time, Kermagee said that they realized she was being contaminated from outside of the plant. So this is the apartment that Karen Silkwood actually lived in. And it's the one where they came and stripped everything out of here. Everything off of the walls, the paint, the television, the couch, the refrigerator, everything was missing out of this apartment. And she had absolutely nothing at all. You can see the lettering on the door is a little bit different. I think that it used to just say two right here on the window but the 9082 is what is different and it kind of threw me off trying to find this, but that is the actual apartment. So I was just talking to a resident in here and they said that no one is currently living in here. But I thought maybe there was someone with a welcome mat and there's some Christmas lights up there and a hummingbird feeder, but I didn't want to freak anyone out for filming here, but little piece of history that probably no one in this little apartment resident area knew about. So this building here with the light pole and trash can used to be known as the Hub Cafe and on the evening of November 13th 1974 this was the last... Have you ever dreamed of winning a home that looks like this? known location where Karen Silkwood was seen alive. They had a union meeting inside here and Karen confided to a fellow union member, co-worker and friend that she had enough information to finally come forward and turn in the Kermagee Corporation for fraud and for also safety concerns uh, where she felt like the company was putting profits and money ahead of employee safety. And so she told uh, her friend that she had this big folder in which she showed her this huge folder. It was a manila folder and it was pretty thick. So on the night of November 13th, 1974, Karen would have walked out that door gotten her little Honda and then headed south on this highway, Highway 74. Headed straight to Oklahoma City to meet up with her boyfriend, the head of the union, and also the New York Times reporter, David Burnham. So at 7 p.m. Karen left the city of Crescent and was traveling south going this way on Highway 74 making her way to Oklahoma City when she ran off of the road right here temporarily went airborne and hit that embankment on the other side where the cement is 
and that's what killed her. It basically completely crumpled the whole front end of the car. And you can actually see the chunks of cement that her car took out of this when it hit. They're still here. And something that's kind of interesting is this hubcap right here says Honda. So I don't know if it was placed here by someone or if it's just a weird coincidence. This is not from her car. This take, had taken place in 1974. This is a newer model hubcap. I'm not even sure the particular Honda that she had even had hubcaps back then. But that's a newer one. So I don't know if that's a memorial or if it was placed here um, by accident due to it just falling off of a car and happened to come down through here or maybe it washed through here, washed down through here. Not sure, but pretty interesting that there's a Honda one there. But on the evening of November 13th, when she ran off of the road, the first person to find her was actually a truck driver that was coming along this highway here. And I suppose he saw the tracks that had come off of the road and possibly seen her taillights lit up. But uh, he pulled over, and then shortly after he pulled over, a couple managers from the Kermagee Company just happened to be driving along this road here. What are the chances of that? But they drove here and they pulled over to stop and see what happened. And that's when they noticed her car. Now this is before any police officers showed up. But there was an Oklahoma State uh, police officer that showed up. And when he arrived at the scene, he noticed her purse. And it actually had uh, two joints and qualines in it. And uh, he also noticed that there were Kermagee papers scattered along through here. And so he picked them up and actually put them in the car and uh, didn't think anything about it at all. But when that car was towed out of here and investigated, there was no papers at all found. No Kermagee papers, no manila folder, nothing. The Kermagee company was actually able to comb through the car first. So because of the autopsy and the police report, they determined that Karen fell asleep at the wheel and ran off of the road. But there was a separate investigation that was done by the family and the union, and they determined some things that make you think otherwise. And one of those was that the steering wheel had been grasped and then bent forward on both sides meaning that she had to be awake and then stiffened up to brace for impact as she ran off of the road because the whole steering wheel was bent forward. The other thing that they found was the rear bumper was dented in and it actually had a couple paint chips that were a different color from her car. So the thinking is, is that she was ran off of the road. I'm not sure if it was intentional or not, but when she did, she lost control and then hit right over here. Now she was on qualines, but it was a prescription and it was considered completely normal. 
it was to help her sleep because the Kermagee company was asking these people to work 12 hour shifts, seven days a week, no days off. And so it was to help her sleep. So it was in her system, but how much, I'm not really exactly sure on that. But it was one of the most stressful nights of her life as she was having to turn in the company. She already felt feared by the company. And this is just a few miles south of where she came from, not very far off. The union and the New York Times reporter that she was supposed to meet, along with her boyfriend, showed up here at the scene and it had been, been completely cleaned up. The car was gone, everything. They did find a book that she had been reading on this scene and it was splattered with her blood. But that was all that they found as far as any kind of paperwork. It's just a big mystery, a big debate. Um, don't know if we'll ever have any answers because the people that could know about it will probably never come forward if they're still alive today, I guess. But either way, it's a set of coincidences that happened and it really makes you wonder. But um, she was definitely headed to Oklahoma City with some sort of information. It's interesting that there wasn't one piece of that information available at all. So the location of this is just south of Highway 33 on Highway 74. And this is on the east side of the road. It's kind of a hill this way. And then of course a hill back this way it just kind of dips down right here. But that's the exact location where it happened. Karen's family buried her in the Danville Cemetery, which is in Kilgore, Texas. They actually had to go out and buy her a dress to bury her in since all her clothes were taken from her apartment. Her roommate, Sherry Lou Ellis, died on November 2nd, 2012 from cancer at the age of 59. Her body was donated to medical science, so she actually has no burial location. So we are now at the final resting place for Drew Stevens. And he is located in Bethany Cemetery in Bethany, Oklahoma. And it's right across from the Wiley Post Airport. You can see that airplane there. He was big in the aerobatic community. He was actually the sitting vice president of the International Aerobatic Club at the time of his passing, as well as the owner of Aerocraft Inc. And uh, he died while practicing aerobatic maneuvers at the El Reno Airport here in Oklahoma. And uh, he was also the owner of Hammer and Dolly Auto Repair. But he left behind a wife and two children. At the day of his funeral, they actually did a missing man formation right above his funeral here. In 1983, Hollywood released the film Silkwood, which depicted the life of Karen. It starred Meryl Streep as Karen Silkwood, Cher as Mary Lou Ellis, and Kurt Russell as Drew Stevens, the boyfriend of Karen. The film had numerous nominations for awards, but it actually earned Meryl Streep an Oscar nomination for Best Actress and share for Best Supporting Actress. 
and the Golden Globes, Cher actually won for Best Supporting Actress. Silkwood. A mystery, huh? Labor history. This was a union um, thing they were trying to do. They were trying to investigate how safe it was to work at that plant. And for that, Karen Silkwood had to die. Listen to a little labor history. Labor history in two. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1887. That was the day that Louis Ling died in prison while awaiting execution for his alleged role in a bombing at a workers' rally at Haymarket Square in Chicago the year before. Lewis was born in Germany. His father worked for a lumber mill. One day, while trying to clear a log jam, his father fell into an icy river. Although Lewis's father lived, he could no longer carry the same workload. The company fired him despite his 20 years of service. Lewis began to question a labor system that would let this happen. He became a carpenter's apprentice. Lewis then traveled to Switzerland, where he became acquainted with anarchist worker groups. Finally, in 1885, Lewis made his way to the United States and Chicago. There, he joined the Carpenters and Joiners Union. He became an outspoken advocate for the cause of the eight-hour workday. The movement had great success in Chicago, and on May 1st or May Day, thousands marched in the streets for the eight-hour cause. When a bomb was thrown at a workers' rally three days later, the backlash against the labor movement was swift and brutal. Eight men, including Louis Ling, stood trial and were convicted despite a lack of evidence tying them to the bombing. Louis Ling and four others were sentenced to death by hanging. But the day before the sentence was to be carried out, Louis lit a cigar in his prison cell. The cigar was packed with explosives. The explosion left Louis in agony for hours before he finally died. Some believe he committed suicide rather than die at the hands of the legal system. Others believe he was murdered. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on the Twitters at Labor History in Two. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1974. That was the day Karen Silkwood was killed in a mysterious car crash. Though her death was ruled a one-car accident, some maintained she was forced off the road. Silkwood was a union activist and representative for Local 5-283 of the Oil, Chemical, and Atomic Workers. 
She worked at Kerr McGee's Simron Plutonium Plant in Crescent, Oklahoma, making plutonium pellets for nuclear reactor fuel rods. Meryl Streep popularized her life in the 1983 film Silkwood. Karen's union loyalty only grew after the company crushed a strike in 1972. She was elected to the union bargaining committee just as the company moved to force a decertification election. She also served as a union health and safety rep. Silkwood found a number of apparent violations. Routine contamination exposure, faulty respiratory equipment, falsified inspection reports, and improper storage of radioactive material. She met with OCAW leader Tony Mizaki to highlight safety issues in a campaign to beat back the decertification. It worked. Karen testified before the Atomic Energy Commission, worried about her own contamination. It was clear her home was contaminated too. She worked tirelessly to gather the documentation and the evidence detailing the company's life-threatening negligence. And on this day, Karen Silkwood was headed to Oklahoma City to meet Mizaki's assistant Steve Wadka and a New York Times reporter to present the evidence she collected. She never made it. Her car was found with rear end damage near skid marks in a ditch along Route 74. While the company attempted to smear her as a drug-addicted lesbian who deliberately contaminated herself, they would eventually settle with her family for nearly $1.4 million. Karen Silkwood became a model and hero for women workers and all those who fight for safe workplaces. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1954. That was the day Ellis Island closed its doors. More than 12 million immigrants had passed through its gates since it opened in 1892. Those steerage and third-class passengers coming to America were processed at the island between 1892 and 1924. They were routinely subject to medical inspections to determine they were free of disease. Legal inspections included questions regarding birth, occupation, destination, finances, and criminal record. The busiest year was 1907, with more than one million arriving to enter the United States. During World War I, the island was used as a detention center for presumed enemies and those considered foreign-born subversives. After Congress passed the Restrictive Immigration Act of 1924, arrivals entering the country slowed to a trickle. Then, Ellis Island became primarily a detention and deportation center. During World War II, thousands of Germans, Italians, and Japanese made up the majority of those detained awaiting deportation. It also served as a military hospital for returning servicemen and training center for the Coast Guard. By 1950, Ellis Island served as a holding center for arriving communists and fascists who were prevented entrance under the recently passed Internal Security Act. A Norwegian seaman who had overstayed his leave was released the day the island closed and told to catch the next ship back to Norway. In 1965, President Johnson made Ellis Island part of the National Park Service. A massive restoration of the island began in 1984, organized by Lee Iacocca's Statue of Liberty Ellis Island Foundation. It reopened as the Ellis Island Immigration Museum in 1990, featuring numerous exhibits, publicly accessible immigration records, and the award-winning film documentary documentary Island of Hope, Island of Tears. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. Okay, that's our uh, labor history feature. <clears throat> Another interesting story about Karen Silkwood.
this time sort of emphasizing the, her union connections. So finally today, started a little late, so going to play this one. Let's put a wrench in things now. Dear workers strike as company rakes in record profits. <clears throat> 10,000 John Deere workers in Iowa, Illinois, and Kansas launched an open-ended strike in October. The strike came after workers overwhelmingly voted down a first tentative agreement negotiated by the UAW, United Auto Workers. Among the over 90% of members voting, 90% voted no. Members' frustrations range from inadequate rage increases to an end to the pension for new hires. This is a clear two-tiered system. This is what companies will do now. They'll say to their workers who have been there a while and gained seniority and seniority rights, Say, oh, okay, you're okay. You get yours. But then they say to the new workers, sorry, you don't get yours. No pension for you. And this is what the union is fighting against at uh, John Deere. The miners take Manhattan. On November 4th, 2021, the streets of New York City were flooded with a sea of camouflage. Crackle of excitement warmed the chilly morning air as hundreds of members of the UMWA, United Mine Workers, donning their signature camo attire and their allies rallied on 59th Street and 5th Avenue just in front of Central Park. So this is a raid, sort of a union demonstration, but not <clears throat> at the workplace, but at the headquarters of the company that is refusing to negotiate or refusing to make just, a, just offers to the union and their organizers. Joined by members of Unite Here, SAG-AFTRA, the United, the National Writers Union, and more local union activists, UMWA members wave signs and placards, proclaiming their solidarity with 1,100 of their siblings in Brookwood, Alabama, who have been locked in a grueling strike since April 1st. This is the Real News Network. Okay, it's about time for us to get out of here now. I would like to go out with uh, Lila Downs. What strange new figure is being born on the border? Hmm? Leela Downs sings.
Okay, this is the B signing off. I'm going to leave you over to the tender mercies of Mr. Flat Black Plastic, my buddy Scott O. Walker. This is the B, and this has been the Labor and Love Radio Podcast. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, where you work, that is, you're on the menu. And never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. It's only a waste of time. Goodbye and good work till next Saturday where we'll be back at 10 a.m. Working the day shift with you. LGBTQ friendly to sports. Vinyl to gutter pump. Mutiny Radio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit face McRat. <laughs> Anti-Trump is the antivirus, or antibody, to the Trump virus. We're a global alliance of humans standing up against the Trump brand. Antitrump.com started four years ago on March 19, 2016, with two sketches and a dream for a better world. Nobody thought it was going to be this bad. Most of us probably figured it would just be four more years of the same old... He was a 70-year-old babbling Nimrod. How bad could it really be? Treason is the last of his felonious activities. The Trump brand has hijacked our government and sold Lady Liberty to the mob. We are a leaderless and without the most basic health care systems and community services. COVID-19 is a pandemic, but the Trump brand is the virus. Welcome to the antivirus. Go to antitrump.com and spread the word. Individual politics aren't important. What is important is that we stand together as a unified voice and say enough is enough. That's antitrump.com.
Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience? Like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Oh, shoot. From time to time, I've been giving it a thought of two. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things to you before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dag nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! 499. Good evening there, my friends here at MutantRadio.fm. Chester Cashcock here, and giving you my love and regard as well as movies over there. And uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that any time I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. I mean, if anyone who knows anything about comedy knows that Pamtastic's books the best of San Francisco and Beyond's underground comics. It's a great showcase, and they have a fun time at Pamtastic's deep in the Mission District where you can laugh off your tushy for me fun. every Friday to 10 p.m. And I laugh because $5, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with. So to laugh it off for a mere $5 is indubitious. But if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, well, don't even worry. Don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show and giggle in the comfort of anywhere, like your Aspen summer home on the mountain ridge with the kayak feeling. So then all you got to do is just go to podcastics.pcrcollective.org slash comedy clubhouse, or you can listen live every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. as your host Pam Benjamin brings you the best comedy from San Francisco and beyond the universe. And what's better than the universe? It's a cash cock, honey. I'm Michael Spiegelman. And I am Carl, not Spiegelman. We're hosts of... Follow us on podcast by with our acronym L-W-A-F-L-M-O-Y-T. We watch a full-length movie on YouTube with you, and you listen to the podcast and watch the movie at the same time. Yeah. L-W-A-F-L-M-O-Y-T. L-W-A-F-L-M-O-Y-T. That's every Sunday, 2 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, or if you're Carl, 5%. Right. I'm so lazy. Three hours later, I finally get to the show, 5 p.m. Let's hear the theme song. Oh. Let's watch full-length movies. Let's do a full-minute promo. Oh, never mind. Bye. See you next month. What's up, Oakland? Have you been missing out on live music and comedy? Remember Killer Dinners? 
Don't worry about a thing, because Soul Sausage Presents Pan Dementia has brought you the hottest, freshest, sexiest new beast in the Bay Area. The Oakland Unicorn Speakeasy Comedy and Dinner Club in Koreatown, Northgate. Featuring comedians from NBC, MTV, Comedy Central, 